My name is Claire Press and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our love shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I Well, wow. This is the 10th episode of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Can you believe it? I almost can't. We've talked about some big, ugly stuff from ocean plastics to the Rana Plaza factory disaster. So I thought it was about time that we talked about beauty. And I don't mean the beauty myth. I'm talking about the pursuit of beauty, however it is that you want to define it. That is one of the major motivators for lots of people who work in fashion. They want to create beautiful things. That's what drives them, whether it's a beautiful garment or a show or a picture or a magazine cover. Or as the stylist Megan Morton, who we meet in this episode, puts it, they want to capture beauty. They want to chase it and pin it down. Segway alert. (laughs) Like beauty, a stylist can be hard to pin down because what is it exactly that they do? They're kind of mysterious creatures. Like, how do they make the pictures that they make? How do they weave that weird magic that makes us want to buy something or transports us through the pages of a magazine? I've just been reading a book about this. It's Rizzoli and it's called Stylist. And it looks at the work of people like Grace Coddington and Edward Ennefel. And there's an intro by Anna Wintour. And this is a quote from her. A fashion editor's visual perspective is governed by his or her earliest years. Hmm. Well, Megan Morton grew up on a banana farm in Queensland. That is actually true. And on that farm, her mother was an avid reader of a 1970s Back to the Land magazine called Grass Roots. <laughs> I love this. I, I'd never actually heard of it and I, I googled it and found the cover or a cover from an issue from the late 70s and it, it looks absolutely fantastic but I've never seen inside one but it's all about how to milk your own goat, how to weave your own carpet, I don't know, the best ways to make stew from veggies from your garden. It's all good stuff. If anyone has access to a Grass Roots magazine, please, please drop me a line via my website which is clairepress.com. Now, Megan isn't technically a fashion stylist. Her work is focused on houses and interiors, but I would argue that the approach is the same. She's worked for magazines like Vogue Living and Elle Decoration, and she's the author of four books. My goodness, four is a lot. The latest is called It's Beautiful Here, and it's published by Thames and Hudson. And you can find out more on Megan's website, which is meganmorton.com. I would urge you to check her on Instagram because she's obviously awesome on that medium. And you can find her at Megan underscore Morton. 
I've known her for many years, and whenever I see her, she opens my eyes to a visual detail I'd never considered. So that is why I wanted to invite her on the show and share some of that weirdness and wonder with you. I dig how her brain works, and I love listening to her explain the world as she sees it. In this episode, we decode all that. We go off on a lot of beautiful tangents. Megan actually also runs an outfit called The School, which is in Sydney, but it does travel. And they hold these incredible classes on things like shibori dyeing and knitting with giant needles. But we also talk about sustainability in the interiors world. And this was not something I knew very much about. So I was really keen to grill Megan about this and ask her just how often do conversations about sustainability and the ethics of production come up when it comes to homewares, interiors and architecture. Ta-da! Megan Morton, I'm delighted to be in this room with you with your swingy cherry earrings, wearing a cherry red sweater and just fundamentally being delightful. I'm so happy to be here and I just need you to know that there is no bangle clash. I have come to bangle less knowing that we are in a fully um, very professional soundproof situation. Because you're a hand talker. I'm a hand talker. I'm like an Italian nonna. I go up and down and round and and I do all my navigation points and, and, and you can't do that on radio with your bangle action. Love Especially it. not your double. Love it. I We're going to start in a weird way, which I love, because I don't want these interviews to follow a formula. And I thought that since I'm with you, unconventional and fabulous you, that I would throw some quotes your way and ask you to meganize them Let's like a it. machine, Let's like a magic meganizing machine. Yes. Let's start with Yves Saint Laurent because we can. This is one of my favorite quotes from him. Fashions fade, style is eternal. But every day you have to get up and try again and again. And that's the whole point about fashion turning into style. Every day you get a chance to right your wrongs. Mm. Every day you get the you get the choice not to wear a leotard. Is that, <laughs> it's not leotard. Leggings. Every day you get the chance to say, today I'm going to go out in the world and be like this. That's what I love about it. So I always think of my my view on fashion is purely as an enthusiast. I'm a clothes enthusiast. I know nothing about fashion historically. I know nothing about it technically, but I know that it makes people feel really good, just like a good mantelpiece does, just like a good living room does, just like a good bedside table does. And so really it falls under the applied arts world. Mm which is all the fashion I'm interested in, also falls under that category. But what about that idea of trends? Because I guess that's sort of built into that quote that fashion is kind of based on the idea of in today, out tomorrow and fast. Trends are fine if you're a six foot tall Ukraine model with no boobs and no hips, but but dressing and actually really being in your clothes. You know, there's there's clothes I always view to get your photo taken in and there's clothes to move in. And when you understand the difference, you'll totally dress differently. You know, clothes that you want to have your photo taken in or clothes that you think, oh, I'd so love to have that because it would be so wonderful to have that in my Megan Morton archive of ridiculous clothes that I should not be wearing but I should. I've got them that just bought down on the wall. because I just can have them as curtains. But then there's clothes that when you see yourself moving them and it's also why when you I sometimes see celebrities walking in clothes and I think, oh, you are so right, the styling is heaven, but the you in them is not right because it's not how you, you know. So you've got to really understand, I think, not just your body when you're dressing but how you are and your expressions and, Mm. and then that can help. You know, moving in clothes is, is, I think, the key to really dressing. Standing still and sitting in a chair is one thing, but, you know, being in them, and which is why I love voluminous 
anything with volume, anything that sounds like you could run through a field. Yeah, because I love the three Dness of it. I love I you know I when um when I used to wear brogues all the time, I had really a big thing about Italian brogues, sort of that play on menswear shoes without looking too andermulermeister. I used to get little bells and I'd change my shoelaces just because I thought, oh, how could I feminize them a little bit, you know, a little bit of embellishment. And then I found um, an Indian necklace and then I, you know, deconstructed it and added those to my shoelaces. And I thought, oh, my God, I love that. People I can, can hear, hear myself in the smallest of ways, you know, not big, big loud bells. And I just think, that that's it like to move in clothes and to be one with clothes is the real joy of dressing because I, I know so many people have the most incredible wardrobes but it's all like when they put their incredible dress suit on and they don't love to be in them during the day and I think what a waste Are what a waste of a wardrobe yes yeah. like yeah. like people who have their china only for Christmas lunch. People when who no wrap one's... their sofas, leave their sofas yes. wrapped in the plastic. Does that even happen or is that a myth? Thing. Have it's you a seen myth, it? but it does happen metaphorically. <laughs> There's like an invisibleness around those things. And I think, you know, really loving clothes. Just like loving a painter, you want to see your painting all the time. You want to wear your clothes all the time because you want to keep them good. I mean, I often go, oh my God, I really need to look after my clothes, not just in a dry cleaning, cleaning, maintenance way. But I, I make sure they're all hanging the right way so they're all in the spoon. You know, I want them to actually feel good because I expect a lot out of them. I need them to be ready when I'm ready. So I often, you know, one of my life's goals when I was younger, when I first moved to Sydney, was that I wanted to have all my clothes on wooden coat hangers until I realised that you could get 10 items in on a wire hanger for as much space as you could have wooden. And then it was at the time when I was really into vintage, uh, not because I understood it, but because it was all I could afford. So me going to um, charity stores and finding beautiful cardigans with sequins and I just rechanged the buttons. I just couldn't do the mother of pearl button, but I just refreshed the buttons. Or sometimes I'd find immaculate cashmere cardies and I'd take them to my Vietnamese dressmaker and get her to stitch in moth holes. Like we'd actually stitch a repair in. So it looked a little bit, you know, not too plush secretary. Oh, hang on a minute. You'd stitch in fake yes, moth holes. Come fake on. moth holes. Well, no, I'd, 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 do a, I'd do an overstitch, like a Japanese, you know, a Japanese stitch. So it looked like there was a repair on it because I just thought, oh, I have to just muddle this down a little bit because I used to find the most incredible things. But you liked the aesthetics of repaired. Yeah, I did. And all well, just, just adding something of yourself into it. Mm. And so which is why I loved accessories, mm. you know, no matter what size I've worn through three pregnancies, through working in the city corporately, through to being a freelancer, I've just loved the, the add-ons. You know, for me, the add-ons are where I begin dressing. I could talk about add-ons oh. because I've got a whole upcycling question that I want to yes. throw at you, but I'm back to my quotes, Megan. Yes, let's do that. Mr. Dior. <laughs> Mr. Dior. So this was hard to find because loads of his quotes are just about women being flowers, which just sounds yes. absolutely ridiculous in 2017. But so, so the shape, I think, you know, I see I see very much floral in his in his shapes and his approach. Well, all that Dior the look stuff was about women being flowers. Totally. But I feel like that sounds ever so... I know, but I think he was just saying more nature. Yeah, so the quote is about nature. So it is, you can never really go wrong if you take nature as an example. Well, I'd like to one-up that. Uh, No, No disrespect to Mr Dior. And say you can never really go wrong if you take wallpaper and fabric as an example. If you look at beautiful wallpaper and fabric design 
chinoiserie through to you know Lee Joffa through to to anything that you through can find. Lee Joffa, what on a, earth a is very that? Lee Joffa is a very beautiful um, textile designer, upholstery fabrics and silk satin cushions and taffeta. Of you know, he's kind of like the Christian Dior really of of interior fabrics. You you see such perfect examples of colour, proportion, balance, shape, scale in interior fabric. Sometimes I think, oh, my God, I, I do look like a, a, a couch, a chintzy couch. And a month ago my son was walking with me in one of my big skirts and we were coming towards traffic and some of his age group people yelled out, oh, my God, where are your curtains? Your mum's wearing your curtains. And I said, darling, I'm so, so sorry. And he said, mum, please, like, you know, come on, we're just going to the shops. And I said, darling, it's really important because you watch every old person we walk past will give me a smile, as in thank you so much for wearing that big, bally skirt. But it's very true. I think sometimes curtain fabrics and old vintage textiles, they're, they're the cues to take. I often look for vintage fabrics and I take them to my sewer and get them made in Dior style, as in very simple uh, cinched waist, zip at the back to pockets. Always pockets. Always pockets. Always. I was going to say there's a picture of you which I really love where you've got a trench coat on and you've fabriced or fashioned a belt for it out of a strip of old curtain fabric. Oh, yes, I love. I love any sort of trim like that. I um, I basically stole that from my love of Dries von Noten and the way he does that so well. Half the time his belts look like tassels of a curtain and it's not from Versailles and that's the lovely trick of genre and style that he plays with so impactfully but I love getting curtain trim or bullion or fringing and using it as my my little bit because whatever the belt came in is the least important part of the outfit right because they're just doing cost efficiencies on the belt no one's ever going to give you unless you dress one on no one's ever going to give you the really amazing belt so I think oh it's such a lovely shape or such a lovely color I will just rebelt it myself is it about being upcycling woman? Because I always look at everything through that lens. So I'm like, oh, you may do with something. Yeah. But is it that or more luxurious for you? No, for me, it's just about having my own version of events. You know, I love the idea that I can pull from different genres and different styles. And then the way I mix them together is with belts, endpoints really for me. It's shoes, cocktail rings, bangles and belts because everything else can go up and down, can't it? Mm-hmm. You can go high, you can go low, you can go recycled, you can go new. And I feel like I feel really efficient when I use the things that I've loved for many, many years. When I get out my, you know, I've got some really fantastic Ferragamo scarves that are very sort of early 40s and really, really, really masterful in the silk edging and the colour palette. And I just think who wouldn't want to wear that as a top? And when I wear it as a top, I actually think... How wonderful. What, like tied around as yeah, a bikini? I tied, no, I tied up here <laughs> and then I tied at the back. Like a halter. Yeah, and then I put a blazer over the top and I'll put it with some really lovely big wide leg Bottega Veneta pants or something that I've had from the 80s. And I just think it's it's as heavenly as a beautiful painting. On a side note, mm. I thought I would just raise something I heard the other day, which is Ferragamo has just debuted the first luxury use or commercial use of orange fibre. How heaven. Yeah, so it was. Uh, they were prize winners. That's I read amazing. about them in Italian Vogue a couple of years ago and they're actually in my book. But they're basically using fibre that's been made from discarded citrus fruits. How heaven. Yeah, fab. Sensory. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want it. 
<laughs> I have another quote. Yes. This one is from Diana Vreeland. Yes. I could basically do an entire podcast discussing DV quotes. In fact, I might. <laughs> but for now, this is probably my favorite. Give ideas away. Under every idea, there's a new idea waiting to be born. It's so true. I mean, I live my life by that. But it's tough. That's tough. We were talking about this before. Well, like... it's almost like the person at school who doesn't want to show the work. And... Out of school, that's what life is like, isn't it? There are people who are very, very secluded and won't and won't tell you their tricks or their special people. But I learned very early on that if I didn't give my best upholsterer, and not my second best, but my truly best upholsterer, to you or anyone else who wanted wanted his details, he'd be out of business. And so I think that that gave me that idea that being flush and doing well affects everybody in your circle. And the only way to continue to do that is to give everything you know. Mm. And also, there's not a limited amount of success in the world by sharing success and by being generous with your contacts and your knowledge. Only really clever people will give it away because no one's threatened. And that's, you know, very much how we do it at the school. If anyone is a little bit shady on details, how do you really make the amazing soap set or how do you really do the screen printing in those colours? That for me is a test of who we get to teach class at the school and that's what I like to do. If someone says, how did you do that picture? I will tell them everything, the conditions, the budget, what we got paid for it, what we didn't get paid for it, what happened at the end and how commercially really successful it was as opposed to how commercially successful it looked like on Instagram and all those kind of amazing things. And so I think the more you can give away, the more free you are because when you hang on to anything, a concept that you think you've owned or that you think that you've been part of giving birth to, it stops you then from keeping ahead and the only way is forward. I feel like really excited, like jumping in and out of my chair when we're having this conversation because in the ethical fashion space, sharing is so important. Like we need to be open with our contacts about how to shake up our supply chains totally. or how to share the best makers. And, and how we can yet, keep every single person, big or small, in our tight little family because we're all going for the same thing. But people are obviously circumspect about mm. sharing commercially valuable information. You know, I get it as well. Like I'm maybe sometimes that person that you just mm. mentioned at school going, don't look at my work. So you've got, you kind of fight with that. Like, you know, that it's, it's right to be generous of spirit and that if what you put out comes back to you in the world, but also sometimes you're just freaked out. People are going to steal all your thunder. Have you ever seen a woman? I mean, I, I speak very much from the interior space but you, it's the same woman because her interior is the same as her wardrobe. Someone who doesn't want to tell you Oh, the one who taps the nose. Yes, and know. Oh, oh, I don't know where this is from. I forget. Or I'm not really sure. And I think when you are like that, you don't enjoy it. And the whole thing for me is chasing beauty. And the only way you can chase beauty is to have everyone on your beauty chasing train. So if you're with people who are... Um, lacking in that spirit. It's not even that. It's just a miseducation, I think. I was brought up to love everything and everyone and see wonder where there was no wonder. And I think I really think that's such a valuable asset for anybody working in, you know, any kind of art direction or aesthetic driven um, disciplined yeah. world, because when you only want beauty, you will find it every day. And you will not care and you'll just bulldoze through. And whatever happened yesterday, you get to wake up and have the, the next chance at it. And then it becomes this really beautiful, self-satisfying thing that no one can take away from you. And then you don't feel like you need to hide your work. 
You just want everyone to have the same access. So you'll say, oh, the Charing Cross St. Vinnie's is a treasure trove for cashmere. Not because I've just got every good piece out of it, because there's only so much cashmere one person can have. <laughs> yeah. And there's only so much beautiful embellished belts or sari trimmed whatever that anybody can have. The idea is that there's such abundance. And when you're abundant, you will just keep the abundance cycle going. Love. Love that. The next one, and there are five, yes. this is number four. The next one is from Coco Chanel, and it kills me because I basically do the opposite. Mm. It's about maximalism versus yes. minimalism or classic elegance. And the quote is, before you leave the house, look in the mirror and take at least one thing off. I think it's a great starting point. What, what I do is I like that tiny bit of vulgar. I like to play with what is beautiful and what is not and what is vulgar and what is not. And so sometimes I'll think, okay, well, that looks great. Tick, 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 feeling good. I'm in on time. And I'll just want to do something that's a little bit mushy. <laughs> you know, mushy, like, and so I'll... What's mushy? Well, I think mushy that means is like, like when I when I pick my outfit, and I plan outfits like months in advance, not because I'm vain and need to look the best all the time. It's the total opposite. I'm just really time poor. I am renovating my house. I have three kids. And I don't want to be that person who makes everybody late. That's one thing I hate. You know, being late for an outfit is so ridiculous. So I know a month in advance what I'm wearing, what needs to go to the dry cleaner, what needs to be rehealed, if those colours are right, because I love to custom dye things. I like to find something and, you know, eBay, Etsy time can take about three weeks to get here. And if I've found a lobster clutch made out of raffia, I definitely want that. One shaped like a lobster. Yeah. Have you found that? No, but it's on my list. <laughs> I just really like I like the lobster icon because I'm um, going to be in Paris in September and I'm thinking that might be, you know, natural fibres and raffia. It might be my own self-brief for this trip. But I like to look at what I'm wearing and then I'll pick a fragrance or I'll pick an earring or something that's just a little bit off. Like something that doesn't match it because that's just keeping myself really interested in the process because you don't want to get bored of dressing. It's a bit like food. You eat three times a day. How do you get re-excited about cooking? How do you get excited about dressing every day when it's just quite rudimentary? And for you know most of the world, it's a problem. It's not a privilege. Mm -hmm. So you sort of got to – I keep myself interested in what it is that makes me wanting to wear all my clothes. One, I feel like I bought you, I love you, I want to show you and get you out there. Two, I think it's so lovely. So when I see people who I think are so beautifully put together, I just say, I'm, I just have to tell you how glorious you look today. And when you tell that to somebody who, who truly did put in effort, you just get the biggest smile ever. When you say that to someone who's used to being a clothes horse or, can have, or who can have every outfit at their disposal, it falls on deaf ears. So I like, to, I like the reward system of when someone says it to me and then I can say it to them. The final quote, which I guess plays into that idea of what you were saying about yeah. respecting the the friends. You talk about your clothes like they're friends, which I like. But the final quote is often overused in sustainable fashion circles, but for very good reason. It is Her Royal Highness Vivian Westwood. Mm. And it is buy less, choose well, make it last. Yeah, I would say buy less, choose well, make it last and buy whatever the hell you want. <laughs> That's you not know, what she like means. <laughs> I know, but what what I'm saying is that we buy clothes, we buy homewares, we buy things, and sometimes we don't need clothes. We need a hug, 
or we need to have a drink with a friend. But if we can think about why it is we're buying them and what it is it's doing to us, not just financially or psychologically or how it makes us feel for that short amount of time, we will more understand our drivers to it. And if you could stop everyone when they're making unethical fashion choices or fashion choices that you know are very cheap thrills and say, what is it that you're really here for? What is it you really want? What is it you really want? Well, I want to feel... uh, I want to feel better about myself or I'm trying to hide under this jumper I'm trying to say look at my earrings not at me you know or whatever it is that you're trying to say. Or I'm angry and I want a distraction or I'm feeling pressure by looking at other people who seem to have more than I have which is such a weird impulse that I know is pushed through social media you know. Well it's also how the whole industry Mm. works. Mm. Homewares fashion that that get it now this will make your life better. Have you ever been to the house of somebody who's got their dream house and they sit there and going I'm just not quite sure why it doesn't work. I'll need to buy more diptych candles or I need to get the feng shui man in. It's like, no. Problems follow whether they're dealt with at a shopping floor in a retail level, whether it's given to your architect. You know, it's really those choices we make are so important and so telling. And so if you can think about the times that you've made poor fashion choices and if you could match those up with what was going on in your life, there'd probably be a really good a really good scene that you could go, ah, that's what happens. That's why I do that. No more. Or, you know what, now I know it, I'm going to work around it. Or I will go get a hug or I'll go get a cup of tea or I'll go meet a friend or I'll go read a book. So when you say buy whatever it is you want, do yeah. you mean less uh, buy on a whim whatever little T-shirt yes. grabs your eye and more invest well, in? Well, just stop yourself and say, do I really need it? You know, is this going to fit with my vision for myself for the year is this you know I I love dressing because I'm a freelance stylist who doesn't have an office to go to so I get myself excited about going between my house and my suppliers and my office and I just think I would love I love it when I see somebody really beautifully dressed when you work from home people often say to you oh do you work in your pajamas so oh of course God, not. No. I couldn't actually concentrate no. unless I left the house in some clothes and then came back and felt like I was actually in a work brain. When I first started working for myself and I had three small children at home, I just couldn't, I really couldn't handle much. And I met a friend who was a scientist and she was like, I don't really get what you do. And I was like, lady, <laughs> hello. And I said, what, nor do you? Well, yeah, <laughs> I can feel our stresses. And we went to each other's house, as in I went to her house, she went to mine. No one cleaned up. We worked from there for three hours and we didn't even like leave out tea or, or, or a cake. We didn't expect anything else. And when I went to her house, I used to get dresses if I was going to, to, to my office in Park Street. And it just I just powered through work. Because one, I wasn't in my own house. I was down the road, so it was still easy to get to. And two, I wasn't in my pyjamas or not even my pyjamas. I mean, I don't wear pyjamas, so I'm just like, thank God there are clothes because, I mean, I... Otherwise, what, naked? Well, hello. (laughs) Working naked is not safe, nor is it conducive to, you know, Not even in Australia? No. Not even in the summer? Absolutely not. There could be listeners who differ. (laughs) Megan. Yes. I would describe you... Mm -hmm. As an interior stylist, a house whisperer, a seeker, a traveller, and a believer in the importance of beauty. Absolutely. How would you describe yourself? I am all of those things, but the one driver for me is making the best out of what you have. And I think that's a real styling process. Most stylists do that. They're looking in corners. They're looking 
to find out how they can turn a trick on something. In 2017, a lot of people are stylists and a lot of people are slashies and a lot of people work in this freelance art space. And I read a fantastic book by an author called Elaine Scary, and Elaine is the um, Professor of Aesthetics and Beauty at Harvard. And she's written a beautiful book on truth and beauty. And even though it's quite an academic book, I reread it five times with five different highlighters so I could make sure I was, you know, not cheat reading. And then I came back to her intro and she talks about basically that beauty wants to replicate itself. It always has, which is why when we look at Michelangelo, we love it. It's why when we look at Caravaggio, we we just see something so ordinary but extraordinary, which is why when we see Ryan Gosling's face, we just go around and round and round. And I thought that is such a fabulous thing to hear and know because in the world where everybody thinks, oh, she stole my Instagram picture or that's my idea of a rock next door to a pebble with a feather. I'm like, no, we want we want to take these pictures and we are screenshotting and having these huge sort of overindulged Pinterest folders just heaving with other people's work, not because we're trying to steal them, but because we actually love the beauty and we want to replicate it. I love and that And we want phrase. to see it again and again and again. Beauty wants to replicate yeah, beauty itself. beauty wants to replicate itself. And when you think about that in terms of, what we do when we see the Mona Lisa, what we do when we see any amazing art piece or any performance, we we just can't believe it. So we want to put our phones up, even though we know it's uneducated and uncivilised and annoying to the other or guests. to catch it. It's just why when we see something that's so lovely and tastes beautiful and the bullet base is amazing, the souffle worked, we want to take a photo of it, even though we know to put our bottom in the air next to another diner is, is not... It's not really good. <laughs> but we can't... We want to hold on to that for one minute, and I think, for me, that's what really is the justifiable way to think about Instagram and that constant need for new, new, new. Maybe it's the need for find finding our own version of beautiful in a sea of over over delivered over delivered content. Because the cream rises to the top even on Instagram. I wanted to jump forwards. I was going to ask you this later, but you mentioned the obsession with new, new, mm. new. You and I have talked before about this idea of that kind of rapacious desire for mm. more stuff. How does that apply to the interiors and the um, home decor? Decor is a weird yeah, word, isn't it? I know decor. Home decor and um, renovations well, because I know how it works in fashion. But is there fast Well, in your book, interiors? it really, it made me so, I was, you know, photocopying that page that you and Leon Rossler spoke about the is it the rat syndrome not being hungry and we call it factory outlet syndrome <laughs> because factory outlet syndrome happens in the interior water lot. So it's the chase they just want to run after the new thing but they don't really want the actual thing when but they get it. But we're dealing with something that you know when we're dealing with houses we're dealing with let's take the the, the physicality of a house we're dealing with a building that will lasts for over 200 years if it's an unsustainable terrible building that is that is a new build and doesn't doesn't have any kind of sense of itself in terms of its ecological footprint you're dealing with a mistake that not just you or the next generation will deal with you're dealing with 200 years of potential mistake but that makes sense when we're talking about a building but how about applying well, then that you to go interiors inside and then you say wow everything in here is is not the things I love. And then you could go to the Marie Kondo expression of is does it spark joy? And in a house, it's not just does it spark joy, it's can we fit it in here? Does it fit through our front door? Can we afford it without eating baked beans for the rest of 
you know, the year, because every six weeks there's got to be a new drop of something that makes us think, oh, my wooden my wooden chopping board's not great. I've always wanted the marble one from Hay. I'll just buy the Kmart one for $13. I have no problem with the fast deliverability of all of those things working backwards from a trend base, but there's only so many cake stands and breadboards people need in any one house. So how do we then tap into this idea for having the most beautiful space we can afford to make mm-hmm. and then balancing it with like not being rampant consumers who are just buying the nearest shiny thing just because it's there and cheap? Because with houses, there is a stop button. There's only so many walls. There's only so many beds. There's only so many versions of velvet cushions or whatever it is that's happening that you need to own because... Uh, You don't want to have a second house to have your surplus. That is actually ridiculous, right? So there's a point where you have to say the house is done. You might not be done, but the house is done. When you look at Instagram and you look at things that are trending or if you look in magazine pages, especially with the news pages with everything that is new and shiny and just Mm. recently dropped, you've then got to educate yourself around, well, what is it that I want to touch every day? I find it really obscene. Well, not obscene. I find it absurd that people don't think, I touch this breadboard every day. Would I not want it from a better material? Or I don't care about my breadboard, but I touch my bathtub because every day I have a bath. That's how I de-stress or whatever it is. I want to know the story of that tap. Why is Are it that we... Are stories being told? I mean, I no, guess that was this part is of the my... whole point. This is why I'm, I'm shocked that this hasn't come into the interior world. Why is it that we know where our beef comes from? We know where our wine comes from, but we don't say, oh, this cup that I drink my coffee from every day, I don't care. It's just beautiful. It's just not enough anymore to be beautiful, right? So these conversations are becoming more prevalent in the fashion industry. Are you saying that they haven't yet reached a point where they're very widespread in the interior I would love to talk about them more because I think that's where the, the... that's how a good house is built too. The, the storytelling of a house is not I bought it all, added, added it all to cart or found it all in a magazine page and, you know, the, it's it's just not how real houses are born. Let's talk about vintage. I know that you love the stories behind that and we connect. We've known each other for years and years but we connected over – connected sounds so American. We connected so over true, vintage. Though. Well, it was nonverbal. I saw you wearing such a beautiful outfit one day and I wrote <laughs> you a letter and I just said – in this amongst all those fashion people, you just looked so gorgeous. What I love about vintage is when you find something and it's immaculate or near immaculate, you know that the care that someone took for you to find it in that condition, I feel the energy around that is so wonderful. That someone loved it so much, they kept it buff, they waxed it, they cleaned it. There's just the right amount of wear for its age and that's the stuff I really like. Storytelling. You can imagine the owners. And then you think, God, you have made it through the recession, you've made it through here, let me look after you and put you in with something so Italian, modern and sexy that you're just going to do my eyeballs a really great favour or whatever it is that I'm like kind of planning it for. And that's why I love working with old and new. I think it's a real cliche, you know, for every new thing you have an old thing. But what I love is when you put them together in a really deliberate way and you just watch, you know, it's like you watch the sparks fly. It's incredible. Something that's got no history and that might be physically very beautiful or physically demanding or whatever the new piece is, up against something that's old, it's just like, oh, it's the best fire show in town. It's so wonderful, which is why I love, you know, anything that works in opposites, anything contrasty I'm really interested in. Old, new, rough, smooth, my God, black, white, future to the 30s, textured, 
with with shellac. You know, I love playing with the materiality of things, and and the same with my clothes. I I, I wear big voluminous dresses, but I'm actually what I'm trying to do is start from a a fabrication point. Is cashmere and silk the most edible combination for today's weather conditions? Oh my God, yes it is. I'm getting it all out, and I, I try and and then I think, oh God, the colours don't work. Okay, hang on, moving backwards. But that's how I try and do houses, or that's how I try and merge things together that might have a history where with something does, new. Where does all this come from in you? So I love the story that you grew up on a banana farm in Queensland. I mean, it sounds like something from a storybook. Is it real? Yeah, did you really? It, I really did. I well. My family moved to Queensland when I was eight and it was a formative time because I'd, I'd lived at my grandmother's house, our family house, and it was right near my studio actually in Kensington and it was lovely and beautiful and very humble but very, very nice. And then we moved to this wild, wild banana farm because my parents had this idea that they wanted to grow bananas. I was like, why would you do that? That's not even what did they do part before? of our family plan. My dad was a plumber and my mother was a teacher. And so they just thought, let's move and be banana growers. They actually blindfolded themselves one night and my dad twisted my mum around and she pointed and wherever her finger landed. And I, Is I that think true? It, yeah. Get out. Then my mother and it landed in Queensland. It, well, it was always going to be Queensland oh. because they wanted to have a horse and they wanted to my father wanted us to grow up in the country. And then they were just really practical people who just thought, okay, well, we're going to have some land. What can we grow? What is the easiest thing to grow? My mother found the most incredible magazine called Grassroots. And it's really the kinfolk of today, but without the art direction. And it was how to do everything. So we had horses that my mother broke in from wild horses. We had crazy paving. My father built us a pool. He taught himself mosaic tiling, like very macgyver type things. And I think that's, it's really what a stylist does, knows a little bit over many categories. And that's really what a hobby farm is, trying a few things until something sticks. And then we were successful with bananas because our area were banana farmers. And it's where the Golden Door Health Retreat is in in, in oh, yeah. Well, it's now called... Gold Coast Interland. But it, it, that area is really ripe for bananas. But it What was are your just, memories of it? Just heaven. It was heaven. It was just heaven. No shoes. My mum had some sort of some, she called them her city clothes. My mother had a lady come up from Colour Me Beautiful and she gave my mother, who was a mad shopper. Don't, because this is such no, an era-specific thing. I, I remember know, this right? too. Mum, if swatches? you're listening, I remember and I'm not a summer person, whatever you say. But what I loved about <laughs> watching my mum get that, her confidence and her shopping stopped and she was really on target. And I watched her go from I'll buy everything because, you know, I'm in the country and yet I'm a city thinking person and I'm an academic and I'm smart and I'm independent, but hang on. And she just would say, oh, sorry, I just can't wear that. What, because my colours are only? Yeah. And I I looked at there and I thought, wow, that was, you could really like, my mum was really pre-colour me beautiful and post and she really got a really big backbone after that. And I was like, wow, power to you. Once you've got a brief on how you want to dress, the rest really is just shopping, isn't it? If you like shopping, that's an enjoyable thing. If you don't like shopping, that can be chore. Enter the internet, make things easy. But the grey bit is is then where you identify. I mean, I love shopping because I love the theatre of shopping. I love to go to the city on the bus and go to the shops and just look at what everybody's doing. I love to look at the fixtures on the Prada window. I love to look at every little detail. I'm just walking here past the Miu Miu store. They have 
dulled brass with it's like the breath of a marshmallow <laughs> this incredible pink that's not millennium pink that's not a pink pantone pink it's a boucle carpet with then a shellacked version of the same pink it's just like heaven i'm not even looking at the clothes i'm just in i'm in raptures but you're looking at the design and you're seeing inspiration everywhere you look rather than saying i must go buy this new handbag Absolutely. But what would we do if we didn't have the shops? Recently I've been worrying about the shops. I'm really worried about the shops. I campaign for less ridiculous shopping. I campaign actively telling people don't buy stuff you don't need. Let's pull back this crazy consumerist culture we have. But the flip side of that is I worry about the shops. I don't want to live in a in a city that has only boarded up high streets and Felice signs everywhere. What how do we balance that? In the, shop, you know, like, in the fashion world, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's. But even when you were a kid, like my grandmother used to take me and my mother as well to, you know, up to the shops, and you'd go as you're saying, and just look at the shelves and yeah. look at the jumpers and have a tea or something and go home. You didn't necessarily buy anything, but you treated it like a social thing and like a museum. Well, almost. it's the, it's the fabric of society. It really is shopkeeping. You know, my my grandmother met my granddad at their fruit shop. The whole idea of of being in a shop where people can come in and talk and chat and download and pick up whatever they need. I mean, it's a really important thing, which is why the vacuousness of a internet purchase will never give you the fullness of buying it from someone you know and pick that for you. It's interesting. I think it's partly to do with the, the way that we've remove the soul from a lot of our shopping so when you say that your grandparents met in a fruit shop I worry about the future of those kinds of shops on the high street too like wh- where is the butcher the baker the candlestick maker you know what we have now is shiny edifices of very mm. very similar shop fronts churning out the same stuff that feels disconnected from how it was made absolutely you just have to put your money where your mouth is it's really as simple as that because it, it begins it's why every day you get the chance to start afresh with all of this. You get to say, I choose to support the store that I know loves me and loves my what I'm into. You've got to find your shops and you've got to love them. I mean, I get really sad when interior stores close down because for someone to have an interior store and really love their stuff, they're not just giving you their leftovers. They're saying, I've sourced the world for stuff. I really hope you like it. We need to value the idea that someone in your area has put their hand up to be a specialist in that area and say, I love... Swedish furniture, so much so that I want to make it easy for everybody here to have a little piece of that lovely, mm. that loveliness or whatever it is that they're offering. I want to talk about something completely different, which is um, busy women syndrome. Yes. Okay, so my lovely client recently gave me a book called Rushing Women Syndrome. Ah, Rushing, Rushing Women. Women Syndrome. You told me this the other day and all I yes. computed was you covered the book in brown paper. Yes, so, <laughs> well, it's such a such a sort of, you know, it's a challenging book cover to keep on your bookshelf because it's, I think it's got a cartoon and I just think Rushing Women Syndrome, it's such a horrible name for a book. But obviously anyone who thinks it's horrible really does need it. And, and to me, I'm reading this book and I'm I'm thinking to myself, I need to buy this for you. I need to buy this for everybody I know. But I did cover it in brown paper because it, it offended my eyes. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. It doesn't mean I can't understand and appreciate the book, but it, yeah, I did cover it in brown paper. And what's it all paper. about? It's... Uh, well, there's so much. It's about women's health over, um, you know, over the age really of you know 30, and when you are working, no matter what job you're doing, inside the house or outside the house, 
the kind of the kind of stress and the kind of health threats that are there, the one my one big takeout was this whole idea of um, fight or flight, which is very much I think what a lot of people are working under at the moment, no matter what business they're in. Everyone wants everything faster and cheaper. And people say to me, we really want you, but can you do it faster and cheaper? And I said, but I'm not fast, I'm not cheap. They said, but you have to. And I said, I actually can't because my processes are not from when you hire me on the day. My processes start the minute you say, I've got this product and I need to make it look like this, this, this. And I will I will stew on it like a boulebaise. I will just slow cook it until it's so tasty and juicy. And I know it won't look like anything else in its category because I've loved it for that long. So the minute the shoot comes, it's not, you know, that's what they pay me for, but it's really that slow process. What's really helped me with this book is this idea of fight or flight, which is, okay, we want things faster, cheaper now. We want it to look better. We want it to move this X amount of units or whatever it is that your accountabilities are versus the idea of resting and digesting. So fight and flight with rest and digest. And a lot of the times I used to think, oh, I'm going to Milan Furniture Fair for my rest. That's not a rest. Or, oh, I'm going to um, go to whatever it is, but I'll do a little bit of work there. I'll write part of my book or I'll do something there. It's not a rest proper, proper resting, as in totally tuning out. So I've invented this thing, or I don't know if I've invented it, but it came to me as I was being mindful with my meditation. Wouldn't it be fantastic to be mindless? Like, so this idea of mindlessness versus mindfulness. So it's not a um, bad sister to mindfulness. It's just a complementary tool that you can use. And it basically is all the things that made you super, super juicy, happy when you were younger or when you were in your, you know, really carefree time. They're usually the same things that really get you excited now, but they just look different because the cost to entry might be different or geographically, you know, they might be different. But all the things I really loved when I was younger are the things now I use as my down tools thing. So for me, it's music and live performance and theatre or anything where someone's standing on a stage because I love the vulnerability of that kind of performance. I love certain smells. So I will go to, we have a community garden. My family has a plot of community garden and I'll go there and just really kind of sit and cut the lemons and pretend I'm using the styling, but I'm really just like, I love the smell of citrus. I love cardamom and orange and all those kind of things. I'm trying to surround myself with things that are really analog. So anything you can't get on the internet, because my whole world is basically a big Pinterest a Pinterest lie <laughs> or a Pinterest facade, I'm trying to get my hands and my eyes and my ears and my nose into things that are not available on the internet. Smells, you can't smell on the internet, tick. Um, you can't really see performance on the internet. If you've ever gone, oh, I missed out on tickets for whatever, whatever, and then you've seen it, no, it's just not it. You, you want to see something because it's so also goes the through communal you. element. Well, it's the energy of people who also appreciate it, and it's it's when someone does something so wonderful, and you all saw it, and you know, no matter where you are in the world, you'll never see that again. And then I love the idea of sounds, you know, proper sounds or proper color. Color off the computer is heaven. That's why I go to old bookshops, not because I well, I do love old books, but I love to show people the colours that the houses should be based on old book cloth. You know, that proper book cloth burgundy or that proper hunter green are the most heavenly colours. Ivory, all that stuff that's not on the internet. You show people some of this world of wonder through the school. I wonder if you'd like to just share with us a little bit about what the school does and some of the people that you've had to take classes there. Yeah, we with the school, we wanted it to be a place where you could come 
and really highly absorb something. So we distill classes that you could do over a weekend into six hours, three hours or one and a half hours. We're quite strict with the timing because as a working woman, I know that there's only so much you can do and so much you can get out of the house. We then take people overseas to India, Paris and and next year other places only for five days because we know that any more than that is unrealistic. So at the school, what we're trying to do is to get the best in the field to teach you something that is highly transferable, give you everything you might need to do it yourself and hopefully plan to see that when you sit down and touch something with your own hands and heart, it works in a really beautiful restorative way. But it ain't maths homework, is it? No. I mean, what is it that you're teaching? We are teaching shibori. Even if you don't love blue, you will just have shibori fever because it's heaven when you see the process of when oxygen hits this slumpy green and turns it into brilliant blue. It's just heaven on a silk scarf. We teach extreme knitting, which is just bonkers beautiful. Extreme knitting is my favourite. Can you just tell us a little bit about Jackie Fink? Uh, Jackie Fink, ex-lawyer, mother of three. How do you knit extremely? You you have knitting needles that your father has fashioned from beautiful oak. They're a metre and a half long and it's like a knitting orchestra. We have to say in the pre-class notes, please don't wear a skirt because it's just hard to knit with needles that big. And you work with the most beautiful Australian merino wool that is literally, I mean, it's like touching a sheep. And fat as a cat? Fat as a cat. The wool lug itself is as fat as a cat. And you knit in ivory because it's the most natural colour. And we teach you how to knit. We call it a wearable, but it's obviously then can be scaled up. If you're a giant. If you're a giant. Well, it's a scarf that you knit, but then you can go on to knit the blanket or you can knit a pot or you can knit a wall hanging or whatever it is you want. But the minute people stop and realise that, look, women have been crafting and making since the beginning of time. Through every crisis, there has always been craft. If the community can craft, it can fix problems. Because if you look at third world countries, how they change their situation is through craft. Craft is the second biggest business in the world. So this, it's not just a thing that we do because we're bored, lazy women having downtime. It's a really important thing as human beings to actually sit and mark make. And, and do something that says, yes, I was here. So when I see somebody with a little bit of embroidery with their name, of course I'm going to go without groceries and buy it. Of course I'm going to try my hardest to try and show people that this stuff is really important, not just historically, but because it was somewhat, someone did put something of themselves in it. How do you feel when you make something with your hands and how do your students feel at the school when they've accomplished that? Yeah, you? I'm a really bad, I'm, I'm a great art dealer, but I'm a really bad crafter. My mum was a brilliant crafter. She did lots of everything. And I remember she even had market stalls where she'd make, cut out, um, magazine pictures and stick them on tiles and sew ribbons on them just like the worst decoupage ever and her and her sisters would have the best time doing it and I what I like to do well I did I took my own class I took the Alana Wilson pottery hand building class and the most gorgeous thing happened I stayed back after the class to clean up and put the wine away and I just sat there with the with the clay and I made I stayed there till like 12.30. I couldn't go home because I was so in the Demi Moore moment, but I also was so in love with what I was making and I couldn't leave it because the clock stopped. I was like, okay. I called home and said, I'm going to be home later. 
pretend I'm out at a nightclub or I'm at a restaurant and I kept going and I went to bed with the sweetest dreams about this is amazing, I'm going to be a potter, I now know what my third career is. And I was so high on what it was to have made that in the silence of my, you know, it wasn't like I was in a group. Anyone who's making something knows you kind of need a bit of quiet down. It's not a high volume. The school looks high volume, but it's actually quite quiet. I went back the next morning and I was like, oh, Pat, where's my pots? He's like, there they are. I'm like, no, 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 they're not my pots. They're far too unattractive. <laughs> and they'd look like a, you know, a cavewoman made them. Where's my pots? Uh, I've got to story. take them to the firing. I was so so in love with that idea and I think that's what making for me is it's not about the outcome or having it look like Joe Fowles is amazing or Rachel Castle's screen print it's about how it makes you feel at that time and when you make something you really are in control you're not because the clay will then do whatever it wants to do or the screen print will do that or the shibori will oxidize in the way that you've forgotten that there was a little piece in there that might muck up your lovely pattern but for that moment in time you're actually creating something and when you know you can do that you know you can do anything because if you can do that as an accident and make a little pot I mean I have to show you my pot I mean my God, it's We hilarious. will share in the show notes a picture of Megan's of my, Well, there was actually two because I thought, I'm so good at this. Just let me add another one. <laughs> I was like, let me add it. We began this with quotes from big name designers from fashion's iconic past. But I would like to end it with quotes from you. That'd be better, wouldn't it? I'm going to fire these questions at okay, you. Okay, let's go. What's your fashion rule to live by? Find a texture. Because people who aren't fashion people will go, well, it's brands, it's brands or it's colour or it's style. I'm like, no, no, no. Find the fabric. If you are really into easy care, hose it down, like vintage Gaultier is heaven. I don't know if you've noticed my skirt, but you can literally, I wear this on the aeroplane and it's vintage Gaultier. It's Sunray From pleats. the real real, Sunray pleats. I can be in my economy seat and wake up in Paris, change Spill into a blazer. Hello. Fine. I'm here. I love cashmere and knits because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to educate myself. But not supermarket cashmere. No, thank you. No, thank you. Find a fabric and let that be your guide because then you can shop many brands and then you're not so, you're not so worried about what is fashionable. Cause I, I just feel like what is wearable because to me it's about wearability. How many times can I wear this? Will I feel good in it? Does it, does it work with what I'm doing kind of this year? Do I put it just in my storage for a minute or do I loan it to a friend? I've got like a vintage library. I sort my clothes with, with friends because I want them to be loved and worn. The vintage library, what's your best thrifty tip? Is that it? My best thrifty tip is, okay, I sometimes feel the thrift. Like I wake up and I feel thrift. I'm like, today's the thrift day. Get me some. And so I will... Like I want to invent an app where you can plug in where you have to go for the day and it shows you how many thrift shops or thrift opportunities you've got. Thrift ops on the way. I know, right? Do it. I will one day. If there are angel investors listening yes. in, we would both like Let's do to the do the thrift this. op. Do you like how I tried the to steal your yeah, idea? No, because I like under it. each idea, there's always there's another, another one. one. Give them away. But this is why I'm <laughs> saying someone invent it so then I can use it because today I – I didn't feel thrifty, but I don't know. You, you can't plan these things. Sometimes I just know. And when I work on what I know, I will just find the best things ever. I really like how your definition of feeling thrifty involves going to a shop. Well, it's going <laughs> to an op. It's you. going to an op shop. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. Jack Rabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.